From the island in the desert, it's Life Punctuated at Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes from Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers exclaim themselves during our season inspired by punctuation marks. Held on March 27th, our three storytellers were inspired by the comma, featuring Frank Eld, comma, Rebecca Kerala, comma, and Bruce Anderson. Now for stories with a real point. It's story time. Mr. Frank Eld! Well, tonight, thank you for coming. I'm going to share with you a story. What a surprise. A story about a house. Now, if you were to go a few blocks down the street here, on Myrtle, to the corner of Fifth and Myrtle, you would see a brand new building. Seven stories high, black brick, and it's called the Fowler. You've all seen it. Now, if you would have been on that corner two and a half years ago, you would have seen something else. You would have seen a two-story, white, Victorian house, which had been built in 1893 for a prominent Boise attorney called T.J. Jones. T.J. Jones later sold that house to the Cesar family, who raised two generations in there. In fact, the last Cesar, Priscilla, left that house at the age of 80-something shortly before this story started. Now, the Jones House, as we call it, was one of five houses that were in that block, in that area. And Preservation Idaho was working to try to save them from destruction. But that's a very valuable piece of real estate, and one developer after another would come through and they would simply say, they gotta go, tear them down. However, local construct came by, they bought the property, and they said to Preservation Idaho, we would like to help you save those houses. However, we can't leave them where they're at. They have to have new places, and they have to have new owners. So Preservation Idaho went to work to find new places and new owners. I'm with Preservation Idaho. Now, many of you probably saw there was a lot of publicity about the Fowler House. That's why they called the building the Fowler House. It was right next door to the Jones House. It was larger. It was fancier, and inside of it, it had all its original molding had been untouched. It was beautiful. But one day I said to Dan Everhart, the preservation president, I said, Dan, give me the key 
to go into the Jones house, right in the corner, right there in the corner. And he gave me the key, and I went over, and I opened the door. Now, all of the windows were covered with plywood for protection. So it was dark inside the building. But as I, and I had a flashlight, and as I opened the door, looking in with the light of the door and my flashlight in the entryway, I just said, oh my God. I was met by the most beautiful stairway I had ever seen in a small Victorian house. The front newel post was beautiful, it was turned, and at the very top, it had been hand-carved. And it was carved like the, to me, looked like the back of a fiddle. And I called this, and I still call this, my fiddleback newel post. Each baluster that went up the stairs wasn't on the stairs, it was on the side. And each one had its own little acorn on the end. I looked at that, I walked out, and I said, Dan, this house has got to be saved, no matter what. It's got such a beautiful stairway. And Dan looked at me, and he said, well, Frank, I guess you're going to have to save it. <clears throat> well, <laughs> uh, I thought about that, and I thought about all the hurdles that would have to be overcome in order for me to save that house. The many things that had to line up. The first hurdle was, I was 70 years old. And I knew if I moved this house, I was going to be doing the majority of the work, as I certainly couldn't afford to have it done. Could I do it? I didn't have anywhere to put it, and I didn't have the money. But I thought about that stairway again, and I said, I've got to do something. So I talked to my wife, Kathy. I said, are you willing that we should try to do this? And she said, Yes, as long as I get a new kitchen. <laughs> so there I was. I didn't have a buyer for my house in Roseberry. I didn't have a lot, but I did have something. I had my Finnish sisu, which is tenacity. My father came from Finland in 1899. He homesteaded up in Long Valley. He was one of the early homesteaders. I have and have inherited his tenacity. And I said, we're going to try it. So that was number one hurdle. Are we going to do it? That star lined up. Well, then the second one, that hurdle we had to face was, would local construct actually give me that house? Well, with my many years at Roseberry, 
That wasn't really too big of a hurdle, and they said, yes, I could have the house. So that was two hurdles, two stars that lined up. Well, then, the big one. I didn't have a lot. There's no lots in Boise, especially in the north and the east end. Where could I put this? So I started going up and down the streets. My friends were looking, and we were looking all over. Finally found a lot. Two days later, they took it off the market. Oh my God, what are we gonna do? Now, keep in mind, this is 2015. It is already going February, March, and this house has to move by July. We're in a short time frame. Well, the realtor called me and said, the guy is thinking about putting it back. And I was in Boise the next day. I talked to the owner, I made an offer, and we came to an agreement. So there they were. There were three stars that had lined up. Well, one more hurdle confronted me. And that was a big, big one. I didn't have the $150,000 to buy the lot. Here I am, I'm retired, I'm on a fixed income, and I'm in no position to walk into a mortgage lender and say, eh, listen, I'd like to borrow 150 grand to buy a lot over here, uh, you know, no problem, you know, right out the door I would go. I didn't know what to do. Again, the time is ticking. A friend of a friend said to me, I know a vice president of Mountain West Bank. He took me there, introduced me, turned out, now, I didn't know Dave, he didn't know me, but I knew Dave's father. We had worked together on a project years ago. And Dave didn't know me, but he knew Roseberry. And before I left, he said, Frank, I'll get you the money. I'll lend you the money until your house sells. Huge hurdle, another star. Well, now I had the house, I had the lot, I had the money, but small problem, the house didn't fit the lot. <laughs> so I went to city of Boise and I kind of talked around on this. And I have to say, city of Boise was very helpful. And they said, well, it'll take a couple, three months to have a zoning hearing that needed five feet variance. And so I, but they said, I'll tell you what, if you can get your neighbors to sign off, we'll have an administrative hearing. So I went to my neighbors. They didn't know me from anybody. But my neighbors, my wonderful neighbors, all signed off. And so I had my variance. So here it was, the house, the lot, the variance, the money for the house, uh, the lot. But I still had another hurdle. I did not have the money to move that house, the $40,000 to move the house. Now, Local Construct had said that they would be helpful. So I went and I talked to Local Construct and they said, yes. We will help you. Another hurdle, another star. So there we had it. 
And on July 1st, 2015, at 12.01 in the morning, the Jones House left the corner of Fifth and Myrtle and went backwards on Grove Street. Now, it was well lit up, but I said something to the mover about, you know, escorts and stuff. He says, don't worry, they see us coming. <laughs> and they did. So we got it to the lot. The next month, I got a foundation down. We set the house down. We let it settle. And bingo, I sold the house in Roseberry. And so there it was. We let the house settle. Christmas, December 2015, we started the restoration inside. And as we were restoring the house, people came by, lots of people, and we shared our restoration project. But this one lady especially came by, and she said, I grew up as a child with Priscilla Cesar. And I said, well, <laughs> you have to see the house. It's not done, but uh, the parlor's done, most of the dining room's done. She came into the house, and she walked into the dining room, looking into the parlor, and she burst into tears. She said, Priscilla would be so proud. She said, this looks like it did when we were kids in her mother's house, and we played here. Now, some people would say that those line, that this lining up of the stars is good luck. I believe that it was my Finnish karma and my Finnish sisu that lined up. So today, if you're on the corner of crawl and reserve, and you look at that house, you will see that same house. It's blue now. It's restored inside and out. And if you come by for a visit, and we hope you do, you will, as Priscilla's friend did, step back in time. Thank you very much. Rebecca Kerala. Um, I promise this will be mediocre at best. <laughs> uh, to the untrained eye, to complete strangers, or anybody that passed me on the street, I appeared really, really happy. I had a great job. I had a 401k, I had benefits, I had a great family, boyfriend, dog, house, car, you name it, I had it. I worked really hard to be promoted at my job. I carried myself in a very professional, dignified way. I volunteered 40 hours a month 
with the trauma intervention program. And the way the world viewed me really mattered. Every day for me started the same way, at work, with a candy jar. And I made sure it was full because unlucky people would try to sneak by my desk, take a piece of candy, and they'd have to suffer through a conversation with me. And I got to know everybody really well this way. It was a hot spot every day. And my nights ended the same way, in the same bed, same dog, same boyfriend. And then something really awful happened to me, something that I never would have imagined could happen to me. I got arrested. I know I don't look like the arrestee type. Um, and no, this is not the story of why I got arrested. However, you know my name and it's a public record. <laughs> Look it up later. <clears throat> no, please don't look it up later. Okay. <laughs> uh, jail was nothing like I thought it would be. Um, I literally thought I'd go in, I'd call my dad. He'd pay to get me out. I'd go home, I'd go to bed, and I'd forget it ever happened. That's not the way it works. If you are not arrested before 5 a.m. in the morning, you're having a sleepover. Because you don't get to see a judge until the next day. And I didn't understand this was actually happening to me until the female who was booking me in started asking me, what size of clothes do you wear? Ladies, my well-endowed ladies, they don't make sports bras big enough in jail. Yeah, and if that is not uncomfortable enough, you don't get to sleep in your own bed. I didn't get to sleep with my own pillows, my dog. I didn't get to eat my own food. I didn't even get to go to the bathroom in privacy. And it's not like, you know, when you're out with your friends in the club and you're like, hey girl, let's go to the bathroom. No, nope. <laughs> I, uh, I just didn't go to the bathroom because um, the way the rooms the cell is set up is uh, the toilet's five feet away from the phone and the phone's occupied all day long. And even when there's someone in the bathroom and someone's on the phone, they're looking at each other. I didn't go to the bathroom. <laughs> when the guards come in to take roll, take head count, they looked at me like I was the biggest piece of scum on the entire face of the earth. And they looked at me like it was the easiest thing to do. They looked at me like I 100% belonged where I was. And I was screaming on the inside, I don't belong here, this is a really bad mistake. And they could have cared less. When you go to jail and you have to make phone calls, you get a number that you're assigned and you have to punch that number in every time you wanna make a phone call. 940314 was me. I was a number. I was a statistic. And I spent 36 hours in jail. And that's in the scheme of life, it's not very long. It's not even a full work week. It's actually, you know, I'd love a 36 hour work week. <laughs> but <laughs> during that time, I lost almost 100% of the things that I had on my list that I thought made me happy. In fact, I might have had 5% of that list when I got out of jail. Friends that I had made unfriended me from social media 
because they did not want to deal with my drama in their life. People that I emulated and respected and worked with didn't want to write me character reference letters because it was a conflict of interest. I had to pay to get my teeth cleaned for the first time in my entire life because I didn't have insurance anymore. My retirement stopped accruing money. I had no vacation time. I had no sick time. Because of this, I became incredibly depressed. I had this life and I had this vision of myself and I knew that people thought of me in a certain way. And I didn't get to say my say. I didn't get to tell anybody, hey, I'm still kind, I'm still hardworking, I'm still me. And I didn't really know what were people saying about me based on a mugshot and a charge. What were people saying? And I couldn't handle the thought that my reputation was garbage. And so I lived in a very depressed state for about five months. And one day, I looked in the mirror at myself and I noticed something. For anyone who knows me genuinely, I'm that person who doesn't go to a gas station unless I'm dressed up. I don't do pajamas in public, it's not appropriate. <laughs> and I just didn't care anymore. I didn't wear makeup, I didn't dress up. And I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I don't recognize me. And the first thing I noticed was Man, I looked so bad. There was no life in my eyes, and there was no joy in my smile. But the second thing that I noticed was how unhappy I looked. And so I looked at myself and I said, Rebecca, you gotta face the facts. This is your life now. And now your life includes a new vocabulary with words such as arrested, convicted, misdemeanor, probation, court fines, alternative sentencing. This was me now. So Rebecca, what, what do you want to do with yourself now? And the first thing I said to myself was, well, since you're talking to yourself, get a therapist. <laughs> yeah, not, not only get one, go see the therapist. <laughs> so I did, and I go every week, I still do to this day. And the first thing that my soon-to-be therapist asked me very bluntly, very calmly was this, what do you want? I answered very calmly and very bluntly, I don't want to hate myself anymore. And she said, okay. My first goal with my therapist <clears throat> was to set an alarm on my phone an hour before I wanted to get up, an hour before I wanted to get up, not an hour before I had to get up, so that I could hit snooze like 30 times. <laughs> because I didn't know at the time, but the goal would be to only hit it 10. That's how depressed I was. We've surpassed the goal. I hit it like three now. <laughs> After I start going to therapy and I keep, I keep making pro progression, she says, what else do you want to do with yourself? And I say, well, 
I want to rid myself of everything in my life that's taking away the focus on me. And so I do. I want to start running. And so I do. I spent almost $100 on a pair of running shoes. It's like one of those purchases that you know means something. I signed up for a 5K. What else do I want to do? Well, I want to go to Indiana, the farthest I've ever traveled to visit my family. So I'm going to. And then something started happening organically. This new list of things was coming together in my life, forming my happy list. And the best thing about this was I was the only person putting these things on this list. My job didn't put it on there. Society didn't put it on there. Friends didn't put it on there. I was putting these things on this list. And being arrested was the greatest gift I've ever been given because it literally smacked me in the face and it woke me up. And it told me, there's something that you've been missing your whole entire life, it's being happy. And it really helped me to find my happy list. And there is now one thing on this list that was never there before, and it comes in at the top of the list, this new vocabulary word that I cherish and I love every single day in the word is me. Thank you. Mr. Bruce Anderson. So following some stories about emotions, um, the emotional world that's very hot these days. So yeah, I can probably do that. Uh, so about 10 years ago, I decided I want a career change, and I homed in on clinical social worker, and I've, you know, I wanted a, a career that was altruistic, um, be part of a greater good. So in order to qualify for the graduate program, I needed to uh, accumulate clinical hours as a volunteer, and I homed in on the world of child grief support, family grief support. I worked for an organization, a hospital in the Northwest, and. Uh, I worked a little bit in, in, in hospice settings as well, but mostly with children uh, after the loss of a loved one. And so at the end of the first night in the grief support group, you know, I thought it went pretty well. Here I was, a guy who just wanted to help, and I was clearly on my way. We met the kids and used the sharing stick and the introduction circle, and we played with them. We used reflective language. We were taught to be present listeners for them and you know so if a little boy said I like cowboys I would say you really like cowboys so one little girl walked up to me and she said you know you're just gonna say back to me whatever I say <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so of course I said you're saying that I'm gonna repeat back to you whatever you're saying to me right and so uh, you know you got the old eye roll there um, but so after the night was over, after everyone had gone home, and we were all in a circle, and the lead social worker said, now I want everyone tonight to, when this, this sharing stick is passed to you, to go ahead and just do a check-in and just kind of reflect back on what feelings came up in you tonight. So, and, and, and you know, with these check-ins, you got to know, social workers love these things. You got to realize they're dealing with other people's emotions and feelings. 
And so this is a self-awareness process that they use a lot um, to make sure that their own world is, is in an emotional good place. And that <laughs> makes total sense. And so, you know, the first couple people went, the sharing stick gets passed to me. And so I gave them a recap. I'm like, well, Jimmy shot Jackie with this make-believe gun, right? And I was like, I knew how to deflect from his behavior. And I said, people aren't for shooting here in me time. And then let's see what else happened. And she cut me off. She said, no, Bruce, no. I, what I'm asking you to do is I want you to tell me what feelings came up in you as those things went on tonight. And I said, well, I don't know how to do that. And <laughs> you, I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. This room was full of social workers, and you know they all looked up from their clipboards, kind of like, <laughs> you know, and you know, here I am thinking, "Wow, I I can't do this check-in. I think that might be bad, you know." But I, I mean, I'm pretty good at this, and it seems like I can do it. So I went on and did it, and I was getting feedback that I could do it. And I remember, after this camp that we conducted, this little boy testified to like a, a panel of donors and people behind the grief camp that I'd been, I'd been this, you know, this person that had really helped him. And uh, it was heavy. Um, it was an event that night where all the kids put a candle on a raft and they would see this raft sail away and the candle was for the loved one that they lost. And this kid was pretty stoic and, and uh, he was pretty mellow the entire camp, but when he lit that candle and he saw that, raft drift away he he lost it he got he really sad and he just missed his dad so much and uh and I remembered my training and I, I just sat with him and I just let him do it and uh and I reflected back to him a little bit and um I was really really proud that he had singled me out and that he'd given that awareness and that he'd gotten that help I was like yeah someone was there for him but something wasn't quite right something in me wasn't quite right because I knew that something was unfinished and the reality was that I was a grieving kid myself and I still remember the day that it happened um, being called out of school in, in fifth grade my brother died when I was 10 and uh, he died of leukemia and I remember being called out of school to walk home alone and and I saw the the van with the darkened windows in front of the house and I kind of knew something was going on, and I, I knew what was happening. He'd been sick, and there'd been doctors and needles and hospitals. But I entered the house, and his gurney rolls right by me, you know, out the front door. And I'll never forget that in the corner, my dad was in a rocking chair, just stoically rocking, just no emotion. And at that very moment, I made a conscious 10-year-old decision to have no emotion either, right? I would never feel again. No one would ever see me cry. I'd become the big brother. I'd let everyone know I was okay, my siblings and my friends, and I'd take this on with me. And uh, that was hard to sustain. I did it. I, I thought, you know, this kid here, you know, getting this help, it was a wonderful thing. But I had to realize that obviously I had to put on this happy face and go out through my life and try to sustain this act where I was there to show my dad that I could be something to myself, or I was there for my mom to try to cheer her up through her grief and through her depression and, and never really there for me. I started this privately defined world. 
this fictional self-narrative that I had to tell myself. And to keep this stuff in, of course, you know, I started to use marijuana at an early age, and I was the beer guy, and I was the fun-loving party guy. These self-narratives can only be sustained for so long in us. And there was this moment where, since this boy had gotten help, and I was envious of him, and these social workers had helped him, and I was envious of them, that I wanted change. There was just so many beers I could drink, and so, many, so much pot I could smoke, and only so many jobs I could lose, and parties I could get kicked out of, and careers I could get denied for being in because I didn't have the emotional capability of doing it. And so I wanted to change. And I began to work on my inner world. And, and I rose up in the career field with an emotional hand tied behind my back. I got promoted to Boise a couple years ago. And, and I realized to really make this work, I would get a therapist and I'd work on this and I'd, 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 I'd start to make this happen. And, and then my mom died, the one who, who, who was really stuck in her own way, the one who never stopped grieving. And she was just gone. And I, I remember that there was no one to help anymore, no one to impress, no one to entertain. And it, I felt this release. And I just, I felt like, like everything was gonna be okay. And I remember telling my therapist, that I would correct this, that I would correct this emotional learning disorder. And she said, no, you won't. You're not going to correct it. You're going to manage it day by day. Day by day, you'll manage it, and you'll be fine. And I realized that I wasn't stuck and that I was just undeveloped and that I could do this and I could have relationships. And, and if I really worked on this, I could have these friendships and I could have a career and... I could do all the things I wanted to do, and most importantly, you know, I could extend that hand and take it from behind my back and reach it out to that 10-year-old boy that I left behind and say, come on, let's go. It's time to do this. So, thank you. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party. Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Marnie Ellis, Bob Haycock, and me, Jody Eichelberger. We receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Pettit Group Real Estate, and the Kama Show sponsor, Sage Yoga and Wellness. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest was Melissa Wilson. Support the storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Story Story Night. Mm-hmm.